stories in the end. Just make it a good one, eh? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. Okay, quick bit of business, as we always do. If you dig the Peculiar Journeys Podcast, subscribe to it on iTunes and review the damn thing. Doesn't take too much time, and it really helps me. And if you like what we do, then that's a cool thing. If you dig Peculiar Journeys enough to support it financially, head on over to www.patreon.com slash Peculiar Journeys. Toss me a few bucks a month, and I promise I will use the money responsibly. All right, that's the beeswax. So how you doing, gang? Man, it has been a clusterfuck out there in the world, what with the GOP bringing back the hits of the 1980s, trickle-down economics, anti-abortion bills, and tax cuts for the super wealthy. I feel like Reagan's in there, except he's stupid and fat and got bad hair. On top of all this, we have the politics of the 70s coming back with the outing of so many serial sexual harassers and women speaking up about years of abuse. And in the case of Al Franken, speaking out about you know, whatever Roger Stone tells them to and elevating the imagined harm of a joke photograph or a grab around the waist is traumatic damage. So we are just, we're, we're just hearkening back to the times long past, but oh, so very present. Well, all of this brought to mind the 1990s. And uh, with last episode talking about the Lincoln restaurant, it occurred to me that I talked a little bit about uh, WNEP theater. And that's actually a huge part of my life. Um, In the 90s, like 1990, I was teaching seventh and eighth graders about music, but I was also learning to improvise comedy at Second City and eventually uh, started an off-loop theater company that ended up lasting for nearly 20 years. Now, one of the reasons... Chicago in the 1990s was sort of very fertile for the idea of people just going, I want to start an artistic pursuit. Uh, Back in the 70s, Steppenwolf had started in the basement of a Hyde Park church and had become sort of a national thing. And uh, we had a lot of uh, off-loop. And if you're not familiar, off-Broadway is like if you go to New York, you have Broadway, and that's where all the big theaters are. Off-Broadway is just a little bit away from that. It's just sort of surrounding and a little bit away from that. And smaller but still significant theaters are around there. Then you have off off Broadway, and then you have Newark. So that's kind of how New York works. In Chicago, you pretty much you have the loop, and it's called the loop because the L system, the L trains, make a loop around Chicago, the downtown area. That's where the big theaters are. That's where the Goodman is. That's where all the main universities are. Yeah, not universities, museums are and all that kind of stuff. Then you have off loop. And off loop kind of because it's Chicago. I mean, there's... I, I guess there's an off-off loop, but pretty much anything that's not in the loop is just referred to as off-loop. So you have a lot of off-loop theater. And at the time, there was sort of this bizarre trifecta of circumstances that kind of really made it possible for any idiot with the idea of starting a theater company and making it a viable artistic pursuit to do. First of all, rent was pretty cheap. Not quite 
that cheap now, but at the time, rent was uh, reasonable. Uh, as an example, my when I first got to Chicago, my studio apartment uh, on what was it, Winthrop and Granville uh, was a studio apartment for three hundred and fifteen dollars a month. You couldn't find a refrigerator box today for three hundred and fifteen dollars a month. So at the time, real estate was not you know shafting you. It was that's kind of so that was one contributing factor is renting a space to actually do a show in a storefront or in a theater was relatively cheap second you had an influx of new talent people that were taking classes people that were graduating college people that were really hungry to be a part of the chicago acting scene improvising scene comedy scene and then third you had an audience for this stuff you had a, a whole audience part of that was because you had so many actors and, and musicians that were kind of coming in but you actually had an audience for all of this sort of experimental wild stuff that was going on. Well, back in 1990, Kerry Goldenberg, and I mentioned him uh, as the guy who introduced me to the Lincoln restaurant. Well, he convinced me that I should train at Second City. I had been an equity musical theater guy, but after doing the Music Man a couple too many times, it kind of hit me how much I hated theater. I mean, and I had a passion for theater. I loved the art form, but it was not exactly rewarding me artistically because it was sort of a grind doing the same thing over and over and over. It just got boring. Improvisation, Carrie explained, was about freedom of ideas. It was about creating on the spot. It was about using my ideas and the ideas of people that I worked with and just kind of creating theater right there. And I'd done some improvising in high school and it was a part of like the forensics program and they called it IDA, improvised duet acting. And I'd done very well. I had some awards for doing it in high school. So I thought, what the hell? I'm really good, you know, because I've got awards from high school in Kansas. So what the hell? So I auditioned for the training center. And it was there at the Second City Training Center that I met a whole host of folks whom I would make the funny with for years, including Kevin Colby. I met Kevin Colby just outside the auditions on Well Street, and we just kind of sat and we were there both early, and we rapped about what was to come. He was coming from Kansas City Comedy Sports, which I had never heard of, and uh, we we're just kind of talking about. It. I also steamrolled Alita Vitas in our audition scene. Um, which was witnessed by Joe Janes, someone you've heard of and from on this podcast. Well, I managed to get into the system despite my ham-fisted improvising skills from Kansas. I didn't really have a whole lot of, uh, I was a bit of a bull in a china shop is really what Martin DeMott said. And then I got to work with Martin DeMott, the man who created the training program and was probably the loveliest man alive this side of David Fink. Now, a few weeks into the classes, Joe came to me, and we talked about doing a sketch show. Now, Joe had been both a successful stand-up comic, uh, he had respectively opened for both the Monkees and Richard Belzer, and an Emmy Award-winning writer for Ohio Children's Television, and he was ready to get things rolling right away in Chicago. He had some goals and had some ideas, and one of his ideas was to do sort of a, like a mystery science theater thing, where we'd screen sections of the B-horror film Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and dub in the voices, and in between that sort of theatrical device we did that three times we'd do some improv and some sketches many that he had written well i was on board i thought well what the hell this sounds like fun and it's new and i'll get to perform and why not 
And then he called together a crew of people from the classes, including Jeff Hoover, who a few years before I decided to pursue a career in comedy in Chicago and was and is pretty much the funniest cat I've ever met in real life. All right, so Joe was kind of in charge of the art, and I was the organized one. So I got, you know, sort of contact sheets together. I got us a rehearsal space in that building that I was in. And then at the first rehearsal, uh, we started to warm up, and Joe came over and informed me that I wasn't actually in the cast, that I was the stage manager. And this was kind of a blow to my fragile improviser ego, and I was a little pissed off about it, but I went along with it, provided that I was allowed to actually be a stage manager and run the show once it was up, and Joe agreed to that, and that was all good. Well, we ended up, we performed Attack of the 50-Foot Woman in the Kalo Theater in Andersonville, which is now the Brown Elephant Thrift Store, and we did actually pretty well audience-wise. It was kind of a, a, a crazy show. We you know, experimented with different kinds of things. I actually can't remember many of the sketches we we did. Um, I do remember a couple of sketches that uh, that I wrote. Uh, a couple of sketches that Joe wrote. One and one of my. And this is actually one of my favorite takeaways. Was Hoover, Jeff Hoover, um, in the middle of the run, or maybe not even in the middle. Maybe it was early in the run. But he came and he was just devastated because his girlfriend in Iowa, who was still in college in Iowa, had broken up with him via this really long, like four page Dear John letter. And he just was, I mean, he was just devastated. And I don't remember exactly whose idea it was. It might've been Joe's. It might've been Jeff's. It might've been mine. I can't remember how it came about, but what I recall was convincing Jeff to, he was the thing about Jeff is Jeff could do every mimicked voice you know, think of every like impressionist you've ever met. Joe or Jeff could do every voice imaginable and you could throw any voice at him and somehow his ear could hear. He could do Bruno Kirby on a dime. He could do Snagglepuss. He could do Woody Allen. He could do Robert De Niro. He, he could do Madonna. He could do anybody and really nail it. And it was hysterical. And so what somebody's idea was, um, I, well, I'm just going to give it to Jeff, but the idea was, that he would take that Dear John letter and he would start by reading it, the actual Dear John letter, to the audience. And then Kevin Colby, or I, depending on the night, would sit on stage. It started with Kevin, and then later on I joined and, and did the cast and did that. But it would be, he would have this book, and he would start throwing out people that jeff could do impressions of and so he'd just say he'd say bruno kirby and then all of a sudden like on a dime jeff would continue to read the dear john letter but suddenly in the voice of bruno kirby you know and he just you know huckleberry hound and they boom that, that you'd hear him doing it it's just natural transition so the audience was just thinking this was hysterical and then at a certain point uh colby or i would would start reaching out to the audience and kind of getting them to yell out celebrities so jeff didn't even have an idea which celebrities he was gonna have to do but he just he was so fucking good just on a dime would do this well, this was fun. It was very cathartic, I think, for Jeff. Uh, my favorite part, and this was my idea, was that the, the, for the last show we did, we had the place packed. It was, the, the whole theater was just, was packed to the gills, which, just so you have a perspective on off-loop theater, I think it was about 75 or 80 people. So that's how big the theater was, it was a huge theater. But we you know, had the place packed, and I had this big 
clunky VHS camera um, that I'd like to take videos with. And I hooked up the camera and we videotaped. Actually, at that those days, we were actually videotaping. Uh, we videotaped Jeff performing that piece with all the voices with an audience of 75 to 80 just screaming with laughter. And then afterwards, I gave him the, the videotape and he sent it to her. So that was, you know, it's like, that was sort of like his way of having closure. And I always thought that was uh, a really excellent thing. Well, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman ran, as a, as far as I know, we ran about 10 weeks. Um, there were some, you know, as, uh, as all things, there were some hard feelings. There were some certain issues with control. Joe and I, at the time, it became obvious, uh, I think, to both of us that we were both a little bit like control freaks. And that, while it wasn't a problem then, it became a problem much later, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, we had a lot of fun, and it was a great start. We ended that run, we continued our Second City classes, and we ended up you know, meeting a lot of really wonderful people, Lori McLean and Jason Meyer and Katie Cawson and John Glazer, and we, we, we really just sort of just rehearsed and had a great time and learned and took our classes from people. So the way the Second City program worked at the time was now you've got like level A, B, C, D. You've got you've probably got 30 levels. I have no idea how many levels are. So they're milking you for every fucking dime you've got. At the time, there were six levels. There was you auditioned. And if you auditioned and you got in, you went to level one. And level one was just basic improvising skill. And then you had level two and then level 2A. And so basically you had to re-audition for level 2a if you got in level 2a then you did three which was games and then four which was political satire this kind of thing and then you got to level five and level five was your show and the way it worked was is you would rehearse sketches with your director for four mondays in a row in front of a live audience and you know the audience paid i think five bucks i don't know what the audience paid but uh so you do that and then after a while they would your director would take the sketches that worked out that you workshopped over those four mondays and then put together a running order and a show that was usually i think it was about 45 minutes long and then you would perform on a i don't think it was a monday maybe it was a monday night but you would perform with a couple other level five classes and you would have an evening of sketch comedy from these and and it would be something they charged and people would drink it was like a regular audience and that was kind of how the level five worked so you got to learn how to actually participate in a show well our director uh, didn't quite have the sense of humor that we had. We had a really dark, dark sense of humor. Um, Lori McLean had written this very scathing pro-choice piece that was all about abortion, and it was I, it was hysterical, but it was really dark. Um, Joe had written a piece for he and I that was uh, WMOL, rocking the mole. It was sort of like a callback to '80s uh, shock jock radio, and uh, you know Glazer had done some stuff. So anyway, at the end of the day, we did our four weekends. There are four Mondays. And our director gave us um, our running order, and the problem that was in—I mean, it was it was a problem because we went from being this really nice ensemble of I think about twelve people um, having a great time, and we saw this running order, and really, 
Joe, John Glazer, and I were in most scenes, um, and everybody else was sort of relegated to bit parts and stuff, and people were really pissed because you know they were paying as much money as we were, so they all of a sudden they're in these subsidiary roles, and so things went from hey we're a happy group and we're drinking every weekend and we're having a great time together to oh my god the acrimony and the pissed off and just dysfunction well our director kind of checked out because he didn't his sense of humor and our sense of humor didn't mesh very well so he didn't really feel connected to us so he gave us the running order and then split well the rules were that once you're running order had been set for your level five you weren't allowed to change it um at the time you weren't allowed to improvise in your show um you just had to do that run for eight weeks and one day i came in for our rehearsal and everybody was in a shitty mood but i had a sheet of paper and i said well our director i talked to him and said and explained to him that there were some problems that we had with the running order and he and i talked through it and we have a new running order and all of a sudden now now the running order everybody had a piece they had written in it there was some improvising in it everybody had a major role in at least one scene so all of a sudden everybody's going oh this is great this is exactly what we wanted this is the experience we were looking for and what they didn't know at the time what i is i didn't contact our director at all i just recast the show i sat down in my shitty little studio apartment and i recast the show with stuff that i knew we had and thought would give everybody a chance to play and that would make the experience a little bit better well that's what happened well then it went to my head because everybody had such a great time i came in the next weekend and said yeah I told him how things went, and we changed this. He faxed me a new running order based on the the, the notes that I gave him and told him about the experience. He couldn't see the show, but he, he faxed us a new running order and said that we should continue to work on scenes and new stuff and then send it to him. And so... Again, now it was all, oh, it was like, oh, now, so we're working on new scenes and people are writing new scenes and we're, se- we're sending them to our director, which really we didn't. I'd just take home and I would look at and I would determine whether or not we were going to do the scenes, what, needed, what it needed. And we did that. We did this for about six weeks as we were doing it. We just, I just kept adding things and we kept working on new material and we were just recreating our show every weekend, which we weren't supposed to do. And then it became apparent and I think Joe was probably the one that figured it out first that it wasn't fax paper and it was written in my hand. But what really changed was one night, uh, what would happen is you'd go up and, and you'd have one of the directors of the program call your lights for you. And Norm Hawley had been call, calling our lights and he kind of knew what was going on. He'd figured it out and he couldn't be there. So we didn't have anybody to call lights for a show that was essentially brand new. You know, it moved around. So nobody could run our lights. So I immediately went out into the corridor in Piper's Alley, and I recast myself out of the show. Completely changed it so that I didn't have to be on stage, and I called lights. And as the story goes, backstage, either Joe told everybody, but they figured out that this is what I'd been doing. And maybe they always knew it and they just didn't want to say anything because they didn't, they were enjoying themselves. I don't know. But at that, the end of that night, 
they did the show. I called the lights, and at the end of the show, what you always, you know, what the cast always is, they go, "We are this person's level five and bowed. And they said, "We are Don Hall's level five, and they bowed. And that was really gratifying and a lot of fun. And we we ended up having a great time. And then my favorite part was once it became apparent to everybody that that's what was going on, that our class was basically creating our own show and it was doing really well, and everybody was having a great time. Our director contacted me. And I thought I was going to yell that. And actually what he said was, is there any way, do you think you could cast me in? I'd love to perform with you guys. So I cast him into a scene and he got to do a walk-on role uh, with the show that he really had very little to nothing to do with. But it was fun. It was fun. It was a great time. Well, while we were doing that, uh, Jeff and I one night went to, we got a little drunk and we went to a show on Broadway at the Torso Theater. It's no longer there. And we saw a show called Cannibal Cheerleaders on Crack by Billy Birmingham. Been running for about four years, so it was it had its acclaim, but it was very DIY, exactly the kind of show that 1990s, 1992, that early 90s Chicago aesthetic, it was exactly the kind of show that could thrive. And it was dirty and weird and dystopian and for whatever reason, we're drunk, we're watching the show, and we're kind of unimpressed. We didn't think it was a great show. I found out later that uh, it was just sort of like a, uh, it was a pickup cast, so it wasn't the most rehearsed group. But we thought it sucked. And at one point, I looked over at Hoover in the middle of the show, and I said, we could do better than this in our backyard. And Hoover was like, what? I said, we could do shows like this. We could do better than this anywhere. And so we sat there, and then Hoover looked over at me as he cracked another beer. He says, so you want to do our own thing? Like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman? He said, yeah, why not? He goes, we need to call Joe. So we called Joe, and uh, the next weekend, I bought three cigars at the Updown Tobacco Shop on Wells, and we sat out on in the park that's just uh, on the other side of the Chicago History Museum, just sat in the grass and smoked our cigars and dreamed. You know, we talked about what if we were to start not just a show, a theater company, what would we want that theater company to be you know we kind of visualized what was you know what were we going to do how were we going to do it were our goals to have just a show that ran forever and just have one show or our show goals to have a theater building you know all this kind of stuff and we sat out there and kind of dreamed what we wanted and uh, yeah joe i think joe came up with the the title what now entertainment productions and uh, and so we thought, okay, that sounds you know that's that's as good as anything else. And we decided at that point to have auditions at the Neo Futurarium and create an ensemble theater company. We'll stop there. There's so much. I mean, I've got so many stories about WNEP. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there. That should that that I think that's plenty of information uh, for the show today. Um, but as we go, we're gonna I'll, I'll continue to uh, elucidate sort of the history of my experience creating an off loop theater. If you're listening and you're an artist and you know you've kind of got that Jones. Uh, I guess the only advice I can give is, yeah, it's not quite so easy 
as it used to be to start a theater company. Um, the, the industry has caught up with the ambition. And so now it's much more expensive to rent space. Um, you can still do shows in bars, but uh, there's a, a, a little bit different kind of thing. We do, uh, you know, we do Bug House, we do Identity Flip, we do Sick as Fucking Stories for Literate Ape. And those shows do fine, but there are so many shows now. There are there's so much thing. There's so many DIY things. Storytelling kind of came along. Lots of improv. Lots of sketch comedy. Stand-ups coming back right now. So it's a glutted market. There's a lot of art going on in Chicago, which is a wonderful thing. If you're an audience member, not as wonderful if you are a creator, but. I will say, if you got to do it, step it up. It's not as hard as you think it is. You're going to make big mistakes. But I can say that in 1992, when Joe Jeff and I sat out into a park in you know North Chicago smoking cigars, we had a dream that we would create a theater company. And that theater company was created, and through a lot of missteps and mistakes but it was created and it lasted almost 20 years in chicago and so i don't think that's a bad thing at all not a bad thing at all all right that's the podcast for today um uh, peculiar journeys is a bi-weekly storytelling podcast produced voiced and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in wicker park you can subscribe on itunes stitcher or catch it on soundcloud um, I will just tell you that uh, next week is going to be, uh, it's going to be, or not next week, two weeks from now, will be sort of a, a Christmas episode. And I've got some, um, I think, um, wonderful stories from my father. And I'm going to try to capture over the holidays uh, my family telling stories collectively. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. So that's uh, Peculiar Journeys for today. Go out, listen to some stories, tell some stories engage in the storytelling thing because it is i think one of the best things that's come along the pike in a long long time thanks and i'll see you in two weeks <laughs>